Hey everybody, Tyler Smith here with another More Than One Lesson mini-sode. So let me explain what this is going to be. Uh, if you're familiar with the Kickstarter campaign to fund my book, uh, Worth Watching, then you know that uh, some of the rewards uh, involved listeners being able to ask me a question, which I would answer on the air. So uh, I am going to be doing that uh, in this episode. Um, hopefully you will find the questions and the answers interesting. Uh, in the meantime, I did want to update you briefly on uh, the this year's International Christian Film Festival. It went very well. I was very excited. Um, I brought 50 books, or rather I had 50 books shipped to uh, my friend Brian in Orlando, and... I was a little bit nervous because I was worried that I wouldn't be able to sell enough um, because uh, I didn't I did not plan ahead and I did not have enough room in my bag to carry the leftovers with me uh, provided uh, that I had a certain number of them. So uh, over the course of the weekend, I sold 35 out of 50 books, which was very exciting. And that was enough to carry home those uh, 15 leftovers, which I have in my house right now. I will be um, I will be ordering a, a pretty large order, probably about 200 in the next week or two. So um, if you would like to pre-order the book, you can go to morethanonelesson.com and you'll see a button that says Tyler's Book. Go ahead and click on that. It costs $15 uh, if you live in uh, the United States or Canada. I'm trying to figure out how to be able to ship internationally without the uh, shipping destroying me or you. So uh, yeah, help uh, help out the, the website and... Uh, uh, pre-order one of these books. I'm excited to to get them into the hands of of uh, my listeners. And hey, they make they make a great gift. That's probably not true. Um, I uh, my talk went very well at the International Christian Film Festival. People seemed very excited about it. Um, I once again forgot to record it, uh, and it's because there was some logistical issues. Uh, the vent, everything was running about 20 minutes behind, so I didn't really have time to organize everything technically uh, technically i didn't have a podium which i was expecting to have and that's what i would have set my phone on and and recorded uh but that did not happen so yeah once again i have not uh, recorded that uh, my my talk but honestly this time around there's really there's really nothing that you the listener of more than one lesson would not no, already. Um, I essentially made an impassioned plea for uh, critic, uh, film critics to come about uh, in the uh, Christian film world. And I was able to have some good uh, conversations with people afterwards who wanted to know more about uh, criticism. And for the most part, everybody was very supportive. There were a couple people who were supportive, but made it very clear that they agree. They disagreed with me on a number of things, uh, a number of of uh, beliefs that I hold about art and about Christian film in general. So, but that's all right. Not everybody has to agree with me. But and also, these people still came up and had a, a civilized conversation. They weren't yelling at me. They were not condemning me. Uh, it really did seem to boil down to a matter of conviction. My conviction was not the same as theirs, and they did not expect it to be. So really, that's the most we can ask for. But anyway, 
Uh, and then there were, I met a couple of listeners. Uh, I met uh, Paul and Robert. Um, I was not expecting uh, any listeners to actually show up, much less listeners are both more than one lesson and Battleship Pretension. So that was really uh, crazy. And it was nice to have that uh, a baseline of support there. But anyway, all right. So let's get to these questions. Now, some of them are easy and some of them are much harder. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to be answering four questions, but the the answers are going to be a little bit in depth. So I'm going to go with uh, Jake Thomas. Uh, He asks, have you ever had that experience watching a movie where your heart is filled with a wave of empathy, a broad reaching love and acceptance of mankind? And if so, what films would those be? All right. So a few off the top of my head, and as I, well, not not off the top of my head, I wrote them down. Uh, But as I wrote them down, something that I found that was interesting is that by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, these films tend to be ensembles. Uh, I... You know that my my favorite film of all time is Nashville, and that is on this list. Uh, and my reason for saying that I love it so much is that in many ways it feels like God's point of view. It's this large, sweeping uh, thing where we get to see the, the brokenness of people, but also there's a sense of optimism, but there's also a sense of realism. And it goes back and forth knowing what people are while also acknowledging what they can be. So that tends to be something uh, in these films that appeals to me. So uh, I'll go ahead and say Nashville. I will follow that with, uh, oddly enough, the first film that uh, came into my head is uh, the David O. Russell film, I Heart Huckabees. I know that may sound very strange, um, mostly because it's a film people don't really talk about very much anymore, uh, if they ever really did. But when I was watching that film, there seemed to be such a, such a love of humanity, as Jake is talking about, um, and just an optimism and a desire to engage with the deeper things that make us human. And I felt invigorated by the end of that film, not merely with film, but with being alive. And I so desperately wanted to share that with, with other people. But as strange as it may sound, so I wanted to share the film with other people and barring, but barring that, I wanted to just share anything with people. I just wanted to engage with other people. So if you haven't seen our, I Heart Huckabees, check it out. It's a very interesting film. Uh, as far as a recent film that I saw, uh, Brooklyn, which I went in with, uh, not necessarily low expectations, but really no expectations. It seemed like an Oscar bait type of movie. Uh, and by the end, I was just so in love with everything that was happening. And, and while there is, um, you know, an element of cynicism and an element of sadness about humanity, there is still, again, this desire to, not see the best in people. That sounds a little bit naive, but to just hope for the best in people. And, uh, and that is embodied very much in the character of, uh, I believe her name is Ailish or something. It's a super Irish name. Um, another example. So this is a film that the ending of the film is so beautiful and the film is great all throughout, but the ending is so beautiful that it almost always brings a tear to my eye. And that is Steven Soderbergh's Traffic. Now, I know it, w- it might sound strange that this film, you know, which uh, is all about drug trafficking and all of that, uh, it seems strange that that would really make me fall in love with with humanity because it is a very sad movie. It is a very... Uh, uh, 
not nihilistic, but I'd say there's a certain fatalism to the film. But as we watch the end, we see Benicio del Toro's character who's been stuck in the middle of some really bad situations. And you realize that he he's never really been in this for himself. He's been in it to make some kind of positive difference. And so one thing that he asked of the, uh, of the American government, um, in or in exchange for his, uh, informing on a, a drug cartel kingpin, uh, one thing that he wanted was, uh, these big, uh, lights put in, uh, put in a number of parks in, I believe, uh, Tijuana because he thought that, uh, that the kids should be able to play baseball at night and be safe. And so as the film is over, people have died. There is, uh, uh, an element that, that the cycle of the drug war is just going to continue. But in the meantime, we see Benicio del Toro at night and he's sitting in the stands of, uh, of a park and there are kids playing baseball and there's these nice bright lights that are illuminating it, illuminating everything. And we just see Benicio del Toro just watching and just, he's not necessarily happy, but there's a contentment there. He knows that he was able to make this happen. And, and there's this beautiful, uh, piece of music by Brian Eno that, that really just lifts, uh, the spirits and there's a real beauty there. And so much so that I immediately want to watch the movie now, which is a time commitment. Um, I will also bring up Mike Lee's secrets and lies. I could say almost any film by Mike Lee with the possible exception of his film naked. Um, yeah, he seems to have a real, uh, love of people. And the idea that these characters can be so very flawed and sometimes annoying, that's the thing that I really like about his films is that, you know, so many movies are willing to deal with the brokenness of people and the, the flaws of people, but there, there tends to be a tragic element to it, uh, this operatic element to it. What I like about Mike, Mike Lee is that he will sometimes, um, he will sometimes show that sometimes the flaw in a person is that they're really obnoxious and they're not people we necessarily want to spend time with, but he finds a certain, uh, delight, uh, in these people. And so you find that in secrets and lies where there are people that are, are, I mean, you know, they're lying to each other and they're keeping secrets from each other, but, uh, they're also trying to protect themselves. And over the course of the film, they are able to let their guard down and actually let one another in. It's a really beautiful movie. Um, I would also mention Kenneth Lonergan's You Can Count on Me, which uh, this is not necessarily an ensemble. It really is just uh, two main characters played by Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo. And as is the case with Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Lonergan, um, you know, once again, it has a pretty clear eyed view of humanity. But you have people that are that are striving to be better and striving to make the world better, even if it's just in their small town. And, uh, and it's a film that I, I fall in love every time I see even a scene of it. Um, I showed one scene at the international Christian film festival. And even as I watched that scene, I just want to say like, all right, everybody, let's forget what I'm saying. And let's just watch the rest of this movie. Uh, and lastly, I would say the Coen brothers Fargo, which, uh, a lot of this has to do with how a film ends and the end of Fargo is a really, is really special. Uh, the character of Marge Gunderson is such a unique creation. Um, and her relationship with her husband, Norm, 
on the outside, when we see them, you know, that they fall asleep watching the TV and all that, uh, it seems a little bit cynical and it seems a little bit superior to these, uh, these, they, they just seem like a couple of Midwestern dullards and that sort of thing. But you, when you see the way they support each other, that Marge is pregnant and she needs to, and she's a cop. And so she needs to, to get up and, and get to work and Norm and she has to get up early and Norm gets up to make her some eggs because, hey, you got to eat, Margie. Um, but then he is also a painter and one of his paintings was chosen to be on a three cent stamp and he's feeling really discouraged about it. Uh, and then Marge encourages him and it just goes back and forth and realize that that's what marriage is. And that's, in fact, what humanity is, is trying to encourage one another where you can. Uh, and then the very uh, last image of the film is... Marge and <clears throat> sorry, uh, Marge and Norm watching TV and Marge once again is pregnant and they're, uh, and he's rubbing her belly and he says, you know, two more months, uh, because you know, then they're going to be parents. And then this love that they feel for each other, um, is going to be, um, spread to another person. Sorry. I wasn't expecting to get emotional about that. Oddly enough, talking about pregnancy kind of got me. Um, Okay, so in so Jake Thomas, an answer to your question. Thank you for your pledge, uh, and in fact, the money now because the the project got funded. Um, I heart Huckabee's Nashville, Brooklyn traffic secrets and lies. You can count on me in Fargo. Uh, if you were to watch all of those films in the course of a week, I'd I'd be fascinated to know uh, how you would feel at the end of that week. So, okay, I will jump to a question by Joe Zaragoza. If you could interview any director working today on More Than One Lesson, which would it be? This is complicated because we only ever have Christians on More Than One Lesson. So we would have to find a filmmaker that identifies as Christian. Uh, and that can be difficult um, because I'm not officially sure where Martin Scorsese falls. I don't know if he would call himself that. He certainly is interested in it. He was certainly raised uh, in the Catholic Church, and I think he's fascinated by that. And uh, both Silence and, and uh, The Last Temptation of Christ are, are you know, his attempts to, to engage with uh, film. But I don't officially know. There's really only one person that I, only one director working today that I officially know considers himself uh, a Christian. And that is, wait for it, Mel Gibson. Now, I would want to have Mel Gibson on for a number of reasons. Um, now, this is an ideal circumstance, of course. So, what I will say is, uh, in my ideal circumstance, he comes on the show and I ask him some very personal questions about what it is to... Uh, to struggle with, you know, alcohol and to deal with some of the things that he's had to deal with in regards to his father and his rage towards other people and his, and his anti-Semitism and just these things that inside him that come boiling up to the surface. And then what it is to, for all that to happen in public, uh, and to be hated and to find 
uh, a hope that can keep you going in the midst of that public hatred. Um, I'm somebody who I'm very sensitive to when people, when people don't like something I've said, even if it's one person that doesn't like something I've said, I'm very aware of it. And as you know, I deal with depression. And so if I feel like a few people out there, it could be my students, it could be, uh, listeners, it could be friends, whatever it is. If I get the feeling that a few people are really not super high on me right now. Uh, thoughts of suicide come into my head. Just this feeling of, you know what? No one's going to ever really love me for me. So I'm just going to get out of here. Um, I cannot imagine, um, being in Mel Gibson's situation and don't get me wrong. I don't mean to, to act as though he's the victim. I mean, he did and said some very terrible things, things that people might consider unforgivable. And that's another thing to talk about is, what is unforgivable? Society certainly has some ideas about that, but when it comes to forgiving yourself, uh, how uh, it's very strange. Um, I think we in this culture are quick to say, no, it's important to forgive yourself. But if the thing that we've done is public and if it hits certain buttons, then I think people are, uh, would also be quick to say like, no, no, that's unforgivable. No, he shouldn't forgive himself. He's letting himself off the hook. So, um, so I'd want to talk about all of that with him. And then I would want to talk about, you know, the films that he's made and, and the way that he views violence and, uh, and then have a discussion about whether or not violence in film is as necessary as he seems to think that it is. And then I would talk, then I would spend a long time talking about how amazing Apocalypto is. Uh, if you have not seen Apocalypto, do check it out. It's, it's a really wonderful film. So my answer, as strange as it may sound, is Mel Gibson. So Joe Zaragoza, I'm sure that is not what you expected, but that is my answer. Moving on. Uh, Ilya Scheidwasser, um, he said, what are your top 10 TV shows? So this was difficult, but not that difficult, honestly, um, because there really are only a handful of TV shows, maybe about 20, 25 at most that I would, that I would be able to, to rattle off as films, that, as, as shows that I really love. And, you know, there's always the, the possibility that there are a, a couple of seasons that I love and then it falls off, uh, precipitously. Uh, and that sort of thing. So, so I tried to go with, uh, TV shows that I just think of, you know, in their entirety that I just really love and respond to. So here we go. Starting with number 10. So we're going 10 to one, one being my absolute favorite and 10 being my least favorite of my top 10. Number 10 is lost. Um, this is, this fits very much into that idea of like, not every season is that strong, but I really respond to it primarily because I see that it is a character-based show. So many people, understandably so, were focused on the story and the plot developments and the twists and that sort of thing. Um, so that when the show did not answer some of these uh, questions that it, admittedly, the show itself was encouraging you to ask, when it didn't answer them, a lot of people felt very, uh, I, I don't know, very they felt conned a little bit. Like, how could I give so much of my time to this show? But in talking with David over at Battleship Pretension, he has some theories about TV that I found very, that I find very interesting. And I actually agree with, which is, yes, you gave a lot of your time, but while you're watching it, you know, while you're watching seasons three and four, 
you were loving it and maybe you were loving it because like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for this payoff. But my guess is you probably weren't. Episode to episode, you were probably enjoying the 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 little devel- little plot developments there, the atmosphere and the characters. Um, and for me, it is, like I said, it is a character-based show. And so um, to me, I feel like it's a show that says, yeah, you can get really focused on the things that you're doing and the goals that you have, but in the end, it's the people that you pursue those goals with that makes all the difference, which is what I think, you know, it, the the ending of the show in that church, I think that's what it's all about. There's a reason these people are together, and it's because these were the key people in, in each other's lives uh, at a certain time in their lives. So... Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Lost, and I totally understand why some people are frustrated by it, but I am not. Number nine is Futurama. You'll notice, by the way, just a heads up, The Simpsons is not on this list. Um, when The Simpsons was working, and I say was, when it was working, it was hard to beat. I mean, it was operating at such a high level that I feel like uh, very few other shows, comedy or drama, could touch it. But that was a long time ago. I've watched any... I've watched episodes from the last few years and yeah, they're pleasant and occasionally I will chuckle, but it's nothing compared to what the Simpsons used to be. Futurama, on the other hand, started strong and pretty much stayed strong. And I think honestly, by focusing on the sci-fi world, that enabled them to also bring in weird fantasy elements as well. Uh, They could do whatever they wanted. Um, And it allowed, so in doing that, it broadened what they were able to do, but it also focused what they were able to do. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And there was a, there were tremendous moments of heart, uh, especially between Fry and Leela that I thought were, were really touching. So when the show, when it ended the first time at the end of season four, I believe there was this really beautiful moment between Fry and Leela and it was very simple and it would have made for a wonderful ending. And it, and then they made a number of films and then they brought the show back. And when they brought the show back, I didn't, I, I think some episodes weren't that great, but I still think they were exploring some fascinating things. And so, um, so if you're a sci-fi nerd, which I don't consider myself to be, but I do enjoy it from time to time. If you're a sci-fi nerd and just a comedy nerd, I feel like it is the show for you. I absolutely love it. Number eight, another animated show, South Park which I, I am astonished that they have gone on. I mean, they're 20 years in and they are still maybe not as strong, but sometimes even stronger. Sometimes they're the strongest they have ever been in the last couple of years. And I think it's because they look at the world around them and their show will reflect what is going on. But with their unique view, they really, uh, whether it be politically or socially or just general or culturally or whatever it is, they do things their own way and they will bother everybody. Um, there are times when I cringe a little bit because, you know, they go after Christianity or they go after conservatives, but I have to assume a lot of people, uh, cringe when they go after liberals. And, uh, and it is also, I mean, it's, one could say it's a mean spirited show and it often is, but I feel like it is maybe the sharpest satire of my lifetime. So I will move on to number seven, 
the only reality show on this list. You knew you you knew this was coming. Survivor. I love Survivor so much. I just watched it tonight. In fact, uh, I for a while, Jen and I had another podcast about Survivor, but just life got in the way uh, and we couldn't keep it going. Maybe we'll start it up again at some point. But the reason I like Survivor is because it is such. Uh, an experiment, uh, a social experiment, you know, where, you know, people, when, when, when the real world came out, they said, we'll see what happens when seven or eight or nine, I don't remember 10, I think it might've been 10, 10 strangers stop being polite and start being real, but it's just people in a house coming and going. And yes, they probably wouldn't choose to live with, with each other, but that was essentially it with survivor. It's 20 people who are competing against one another now take away food and sleep and each of them are working towards a specific goal and you get to see what each individual person is willing to compromise of themselves in order to make it to the end. And sometimes they're unwilling to compromise. Sometimes they're willing to compromise a lot in the spirit of this is not my real life. Um, and then other people find that attitude 100% un- unacceptable. So it's really interesting. And, you know, the nature of the show is such that when you watch it, <clears throat> it's very easy to find the person that most represents you. And it's hard not to root for that person. Um, and uh, and then there are some interesting social discussions that come about, you know, this this season, there was a discussion of transgender uh, circumstances, and in the past, there has been discussion of racism. And Jeff Probst, while he might be kind of a bro, and there are times I don't that I don't really care for him, he also knows what makes for yes, good TV, but also interesting TV and maybe engaging TV and engaging discussions. And so he does have the ability to in tribal council to bring things back to a really, I think, constructive place. Um, so yeah, if you haven't watched survivor, I'd say, check it out. Uh, it is a show that is at times very stressful at times, very emotional. Um, but it is extremely engaging. I never would have thought that I love it, that I would ever love it as much as I do, but I do. And I've seen every season, wait, not every season. I haven't seen 10 or 11. Jen and I are working through number 10 right now. And then it's on to 11. Number six, The Sopranos. Uh, this is largely considered one of the best shows of all time, maybe not, maybe the best. And I haven't seen it in a while. If I were to rewatch it uh, a third time, um, then I might put it higher on, on my list. But it really is a show that kind of kind of does a. a, a bait and switch, but in a way that I love where, yes, it is a mafia show, um, in the spirit more of the, of, of Goodfellas than the Godfather. Um, but it is also a show about family, not unlike the Godfather. So it's this weird combination of things. And I know a lot of people, uh, people that I consider to be dumb, um, that might be mean, but you know what? I'm willing to stand by it. They would watch the show and anytime it turned domestic between Tony and Carmela, they just said, Oh, come on, this is ridiculous. You know, when are we going to get to the mob stuff? And to me, I feel like we've seen mob stuff before. We haven't seen the day to day life of raising a kid in the modern in modern day and trying to keep a marriage going in modern day when you are an absolute sociopath, which is what this, which is what Tony Soprano is because he's willing to kill people in order to, uh, make his own life better. And so how is a man like that ever going to sacrifice for his wife? And, uh, that to me is what is so fascinating about the Sopranos. And these are, you know, very 
frustrating people and there are times when I hate pretty much everybody on the show. And then there are times that I absolutely love them. So we'll move on. Number five, Twin Peaks. It's coming back, which I'm excited about for the most part. We'll see how it goes. I'm not thrilled with the idea of something coming back after this long because that's a lot of, uh, I don't know, that's a lot of pop culture references. That's a lot of fan appreciation. And while I don't think David Lynch is the type to uh, do fan service, you never quite know. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, Twin Peaks, it was on for essentially a season and a half. Um, and it, it's it's such a fully formed thing. It's a wonderful ensemble. You feel like Twin Peaks is this living, breathing entity, like the whole town was built on an Indian burial ground or something like that. There are odd supernatural things that are happening. And there are soap opera elements to how the characters relate to each other. And such so much of it is so heightened. And yet, at the core of a lot of it, not all of it, but at the core of a lot of it is a real love for other people and a real core of humanity and and a deep uh, desire to connect you know you see a lot of very broken families even if they're together emotionally they're very broken and you see little glimmers of why why this couple got married or the love that they have for their children or the the love that their children have for them you see glimmers of it uh in the midst of very strange humor and some very surreal imagery it is a a very frightening show at times but it is such a a wonderful exercise in style uh we'll move on number four another animated series this is batman the animated series which was very formative for me um i was 10 when it first came on i had already seen tim burton's batman and batman returns uh but this was something i hadn't seen before it was a it was a it was a kid's show that seemed to exist outside of time uh, there was a lot of art deco there were a lot of film noir elements but also a lot of sci- uh, science fiction elements but you know the 1930s vision of sci-fi so uh it's all these things working together plus uh this odd superhero element i'm fascinated that fox let that show be made the way it was made but given the popularity of the dan of the 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 tim burton films um i guess i can understand why that would happen but i think the reason that i loved it so much is that it humanized the villains in a way that blew my mind at age 10. almost every villain has a sympathetic backstory uh where they've been betrayed or they've been hurt um and they choose to do something that I think any number of people would choose to do, um, which is get back at people and, and feel entitled and think, no, this is, look at what life did to me. I am perfectly justified in doing what I, what I'm doing. But by, by focusing on that element of the villains, the show essentially winds up being more of a meditation on Batman because he isn't a guy who decided I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, take my frustrations out on the world. Now, he still is a vigilante. He doesn't choose to be a lawyer or a cop. So there is that. You know, he does choose to to strike down hard on criminals, but he also doesn't kill, you know, and his parents were killed. So part of him probably wants to kill these, these villains uh, and these criminals, but he doesn't. And so when you see the Riddler, the Mad Hatter, the Clock King was a, a, an episode I really liked, um... Clayface is one of the most tragic uh, 
villains in the series, when you see what happens to them and the choices they make, and then you see that Batman is alone in the choice that he makes, it really gives you an appreciation for that character. And then just the world itself is is fascinating. It's very simple, but remarkably complex. And I do think that it influenced the way I approach film to this day. Um, the idea of the sympathetic villain and the idea of this dark world where people are trying to be happy and they're trying to be successful, uh, often in spite of themselves. So top three here, number three, comedy show Seinfeld. Seinfeld, okay, so that that show was on for nine seasons, and that's one that, you know, unlike The Simpsons, which admittedly, if The Simpsons had only gone nine or ten seasons, I think it would be on this list, but Seinfeld, they chose to stop while they were ahead, not merely in ratings, but I think also in creative juices. I think Jerry Seinfeld did not want to run dry, and if you want an example of why not, just look at The Simpsons. I, I feel like they're taking a beating. Don't get me wrong. Again, when The Simpsons was good, it was there was nobody better. But Seinfeld was so consistently good and so consistently funny and so many different types of funny. That's the other thing. Yes, you've got the zaniness of Kramer, but then you also have the the uh, the boisterous, frustr- impotent rage of George, and then you have the the smart aleck, superior humor of Elaine, and then you have this uh, amused, distant commenting from Jerry. But then at the same time, um, uh, these characters could take on elements of each other, uh, given the, the need, but they were still very consistent. We, we still got a good sense of who they were, but they were also remarkably malleable, which is something that you'll find in some of the best comedy. Um, and it's just a show that I could quote with David and my friends all day long. You know, back when I was in college and I lived in Chicago, Seinfeld was on two or three times a day and I watched it every time. And even episodes that I'd seen a million times, there was always something new to laugh at. Um, okay. So we get to number two, my number one and number two have been duking it out for number one, um, for about 10 years. And Honestly, if you were to ask me tomorrow, then I might switch them. But as it is, number two is The Wire, uh, which is a show that episode one, we see a criminal on trial because he had murdered a witness, somebody who just wanted to wanted to come forward and help uh, solve a mystery and help clean up the streets. And this guy killed him for it. And I remember thinking, I want that guy that's on trial. I want him to go to jail. Um, I was, and I, and I had this feeling, I was like, I bet this show is going to try and get me to sympathize with him. And you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to sympathize with, uh, D'Angelo Barksdale. And you know what? Within one episode, I was sympathizing with him. And that is the nature of this show is that, whether it be the cops that are, that are trying to catch the criminals, but then we spend a lot of time with the criminals themselves. There are, there's, a lot of it's a, it's a show ultimately about institutions and the breakdown of the institution as opposed to the individual. You have, you know, soldiers, whether they be, you know, beat cops or just low level drug dealers, they're trying to do what they can to just get through life. But it's the people up, you know, the people above them that are making these choices for them that are ruining their lives. And part of the brilliance of The Wire is with each season, it expands 
you know, in, in season two, it expands to the docks and you see these, uh, these Polish dock workers. And I know a lot of people got bo- were bothered by that. They didn't find it that interesting. Um, but then with season three, I think people get, had a better sense of what season two was meant to be because season three, you brought in politicians and then season four, you brought in school kids. And that was a big part of that season. And then season five, you brought in journalists and you have all of these institutions, all of them theoretically working for the betterment of society. And you just see that the people on top always are looking to just consolidate their, their power and keep things sort of at a status quo. Uh, and it always has an adverse effect on the people down below. And so it's a, it's a show that I think everybody of any political stripe should watch. I think it's absolutely amazing. Number one, Deadwood. Deadwood is not unlike The Wire in that they are both ensemble dramas and they they build on that ensemble over the course of three seasons. But Deadwood gives you such a sense of that world. So it takes place in the real life uh, town of Deadwood uh, in the 1850s. Or maybe it's 1860s or 70s now that I remember and now that I'm thinking about it because um, it does take place after the Civil War. And so you have uh, these people who Deadwood is in the is off in the frontier. I think at the beginning of the show, it's not even in an official state. So there is no law. So you get people going there just to just get away from the mistakes they've made in civilization. And so they go to Deadwood to start to start a new life. And this is also a show where there are people that there are characters that are clearly villains but there's such a humanity to them and there's tremendous sympathy in them in, at certain times. I would say specifically Al Swearingen, played by Ian McShane. He is a guy who he's essentially, you know, the, the crime kingpin of this town. Uh, and he is not very sympathetic, but over the course of the show, it's not merely that you get more of his backstory, but you also see him stepping up as the, as the town starts to evolve and grow, you see him actually stepping up into more of a political, not officially political, but sort of a, a mayor position and, and I don't know, willing to do the right thing, uh, even if it means doing something quite terrible. Um, and what's also interesting is that, uh, the show, just when you think a character is as villainous as you can get, they'll introduce someone new that is much worse. Uh, Alice Waringen is really rough until Cy Tolliver comes in and that's only a few episodes in. Um, and then season three, you get George Hurst played by Gerald McCraney and he is such, I mean, he is one of my favorite TV or movie villains ever. He is an absolute sociopath who seems very down home, but he is an, he is a monster. Uh, and the way that he unifies the people of Deadwood is something really special in season three. But, uh, the way that this town evolves and becomes a community, even in spite of itself is something that I find, uh, really beautiful and really touching at times. Um, and it is wonderfully written. It is almost Shakespearean in the way that it is written. So, uh, if you're a writer or if you're an actor, really, if you're anything, if you love art, at all, then I would say seek out Deadwood. It's three seasons. By the way, if language bothers you, Deadwood is not the show for you. There is a lot of swearing. Um, 
So, okay, that's my top 10, my, my 10 favorite, uh, my 10 favorite TV shows of all time. And if I were to make the show blind, uh, make the list blind tomorrow, then it would probably look different, but Deadwood would probably be number one and the wire would probably be number two. So, okay. Thank you, Ilya, for that question. Last question. And this is going to be a little rough. This is from John, uh, D I R O M Dyrum Durham. I don't know. Um, let's just say John for the time being. So I'll just read what he wrote and then I will respond for my on-air question. I would like to know your opinion on the growing number of film critiques in podcast, uh, and mm, I think there's a typo here, but essentially, uh, the number of film critiques in podcasts and otherwise, uh, that seem to be based on uh, the ideology of identity politics. Uh, while I understand that film has an intrinsic basis in the politics of the time, it feels like now more than ever that the critical community is concerned more with discussing narratives than the film itself. Personally, I think a film should be judged on what it presents and not what it could have been. All right. Well, this is pretty rough because, uh, you know, we're talking about identity politics. We're getting into concepts of social justice and all that. Uh, I will lead with this. I am not in the position to judge anybody for bending, uh, consciously or unconsciously, bending the meaning of a film to suit them. This is more than one lesson. We talk about movies from a Christian standpoint often movies that have no interest in that at all. In fact, sometimes very much the opposite. Uh, but I, these movies that I see, they strike something in me on a Christian level and I discuss them from that level. So if, if somebody sees a movie and it strikes them on a social justice level, I have no room to tell them that they are wrong. Um, so I just wanted to lead with that. And so if somebody, you know, I, over Battleship Pretension, David calls himself a, a social justice warrior. He and I have had huh, some pretty exhausting conversations recently about this sort of thing. Um, and, and I would not begrudge him his opinion. I would not say that he's doing it artificially. I would not say that he's doing it in order to virtue signal. Um, it's possible that there are some people out there that would do that, but I certainly know there are plenty of Christians out there that do that, um, that say, you know, I would never watch a show or I never watch this movie. I would never watch the Oscars. And, and these are the same people that would bash liberals for virtue signaling. Meanwhile, these people are going on Facebook to announce that they're not watching something. In other words, they are signaling their virtue. So, so uh, I don't want to demonize uh, at all, really, uh, people that uh, that might do the exact thing that I do, only do it in a different direction. Um, that said, you know, uh, the, the bulk of, of film critics are politically liberal. And, and at this point in time, that does mean uh, embracing a certain type of, of social justice mentality, which I don't begrudge them that that's just the, that's where things are right now. And so if that's how they see a movie, that's how they see it. Um, but it does, I, I feel like, I feel like it instinctively bothers me, but I feel like it maybe shouldn't, you know, um, where I think it can be frustrating is a movie like American Sniper, where 
it was for many people, including David, by the way, and he and I have talked about this, so I'm okay to say it here. And I don't mean to, I really don't like the idea of talking behind somebody's back, but it's an example and it's one that's been public. So, uh, American Sniper, I think was David's least favorite movie of that year. And he was not alone. A lot of people, uh, a lot of critics really didn't like American Sniper. And they didn't like it because of some of the politics behind it, some of the uh, simplified uh, uh, political leanings of the film itself. And I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they are judging the film on its own merits. But when it comes right down to it, we know that Clint Eastwood made it. We know that he is right-leaning. And so it's possible that if someone did not know that he had made it, they might like it a little bit more, but that's the thing is we do know he made it. We, we don't watch movies in a vacuum. And so, uh, if I knew that Bill Maher made a movie and the movie was really good, I might be a little bit more inclined to dismiss it or find the negative in it. Um, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to remove that type of, of bias. If I, I know that if Michael Moore makes a movie, I'm a little, I'm much more suspicious of the claims of the film. Um, rather than just watch the film on its own. Um, that said, uh, I was no huge fan of American sniper, but I think there's some real artistry going on there. Uh, everybody, including David acknowledges that Bradley Cooper is doing some really special work, but I also think that directorially, I think Clint Eastwood is, you know, for a guy that is as old as he is, he was not pulling back. I mean, there are some sequences there that are, pulse pounding and chaotic. And when I think of Clint Eastwood, I don't think of a guy that's actually chaotic. I think of a guy that's very methodical. When I look at something like Mystic River or Million Dollar Baby or Gran Torino or most recently Sully. So for him to, I especially think of that, of the sandstorm sequence, uh, which I think is so wonderfully put together in that you don't know what's going on and yet you also do know what's going on you know what the goals for the character are and it really is a special sequence in a movie that i think is is pretty special um though not though not my favorite um and a lot of and so to me you know roger ebert always said that a movie is not what it's about it's how it's about it and if we are, if we were to look at America, now that doesn't have to. That's not the rule for everybody. That's fine. But if we were to look at at what American Sniper was about and how it was about it, I would say how it was about it is pretty great. What it's about is a bit simplistic. I would agree, um, and that might be what kept me from really loving it. But to have so many people say it was their least, that it was the worst movie of 2014. Um, or is that 2013? I think it's 2014. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that is people that are that are thinking first from a, a political standpoint. Um, another example of a film I have not seen. So I will lead with that. And so maybe I shouldn't even say this um, is the film Obvious Child, which, uh, again, I haven't seen it, but I know that uh, it features a character played by Jenny Slate, who I think is very funny, um, ha- uh, getting an abortion. And one review after another said that the film does a good job at destigmatizing abortion um, and not treating it like this, this uh, taboo subject. Now, here's the thing. Is destigmatizing abortion an inherently good thing? 
is that enough to, for, for the film to be praised? Um, but let's look at it from the other side. Uh, is, is it, do I want abortion to remain a taboo subject just because I think it's a, an awful thing, you know, and this is where it comes in. Uh, I do think having not seen the film, but I know people that have that tend that honestly agree more with me politically. And they said, you know, they, they think it's a fine movie, but certainly not one of the 10 best movies of, of 20, I believe that was 2014. Again, it might be 15 actually. Um, and so, but that's the thing is the people that said that they agree with me. And so everybody's going to bring this stuff to it. Let's go back to American Sniper. Um, there are plenty of conservative commentators, albeit not critics, but plenty of conservative, conservative commentators who were just up in arms about, uh, American Sniper. It made so much money, but the Academy didn't give it best picture. It went to that weird Birdman movie and blah, blah, blah. You know, so for them, the one movie they saw, which was the film made by the conservative, um, they're, they're, uh, they're frustrated that that didn't get more Oscar support. And it's just like, yeah, but you're, you're saying that because it's the movie you like, you know, and you like it because you know who made it and you like it because granted there is stuff to like there, but you're championing this film because it fits with what you want and what you like. So it's tough. I, I can't, I can't, I can't say definitively that, Oh, critics are, are leading from their politics. Uh, they might be, um, but then I lead with my faith. So what does that tell you? Um, I will say, and this is something that, uh, you know, that we, that we talked about, uh, over at more at uh, battleship pretension, uh, to, uh, my own emotional detriment. Um, I think if, a, if somebody sees a film and they have a political response to it, I think that's fine. Um, or a TV show. But I think when they take that TV show and use it to make a political point, even if that, even if the, it's the director's intention, I feel like that's when they might be not necessarily stretching, but that's when I think they're starting to see art as a means to an end. And so I have not seen The Handmaid's Tale. I know a number of conservatives that bash it all day long, which makes me actually more likely to want to watch it uh, because I tend to agree more with my liberal friends than my conservative friends artistically. Um, and so what I'll say is uh, a number of, but I did, I have read a number of reviews that are over the moon about The Handmaid's Tale and they say, oh, this is something that could happen here. This is something that, you know, if we're not careful, this could actually happen. And it's about people that, you know, powerful figures who, who, uh, bastardize Christianity and they bastardize the Bible in order to consolidate their power. And, and there are people that say, oh, this could absolutely happen here. To which I would say, no, it can't. Um, sorry. I, I genuinely don't think that. And maybe it's because I'm a conservative, but honestly, look, I'm not happy about Trump being in office either. Um, and yeah, I kind of wring my hands a little bit. I kind of clutch my pearls at some of the stuff that he does. And if he weren't in office, I'd be a lot happier and I'd sleep a lot easier. Um, but at the same time to take that and say, Oh, but, uh, that could, that could amount to, uh, you know, women ultimately being used only for uh, birthing children and they have no real rights. 
I feel like that's you're taking something that admittedly did have a political was made. The book was written with a, a political uh, goal in mind. It was written with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in mind in the 1980s. So it definitely was that. But and then, you know, people are just taking that initial intention and adapting it to modern day. But it wasn't true then either. And it's not true now that I don't think can happen here. I don't think anybody's looking for that. But here's the thing, and this is where I could get in trouble, and this is where we get into some of the things that I edited out of uh, that episode of Battleship Pretension, Um, which is when somebody's own political agenda, whether it be conservative or liberal, or or their spiritual agenda, whether it be atheist or or Christian or Buddhist or whatever, uh, when it starts to blind them to to larger questions that should be asked as uh, whenever we're approaching art, I feel like that's when it can be a problem. For example, um, so many people are looking at something like The Handmaid's Tale and saying like, oh my gosh, that could happen here. That could happen here. Now, even if I agreed that it could happen here, it's not happening here yet. And it's still a long ways off. Meanwhile, that exact thing is happening somewhere else right now. It's not an alternative reality. It is a reality in other countries, you know, countries that are extremist. And yes, I'm talking about extreme Islam. I'm not talking about regular, normal, God-fearing Muslims. I'm not talking about Islam as a religion. I'm talking about extreme uh, Islamic governments and The stuff that they put women through there is quite possibly worse than what's happening in the in the Handmaid's Tale. But we're so. But honestly, critics here are so busy looking at Trump and looking at at what uh, what this country could be that they're blinding themselves to what actually is elsewhere. And I think that is a a narrow view. If you want to talk about, you know. If you want to say, hey, if we're not careful, it could happen here just as it is happening elsewhere right now. We should maybe address both. But instead, one gets ignored because it's a lot easier, I think, in this country to uh, and it's easier for Hollywood to do this. And I think it's easier for critics to do this, to just focus on Christianity and just the the various ways that Christianity as an institution has failed and it has failed many times. So I'm sorry for getting political, but it's the nature of this question. Um, you know, everybody is going to have their own lens. Everybody is going to have, everyone's going to look at something tunnel visioned. Uh, there are undoubtedly films that, you know, I, I'm somebody that recommends the case for Christ. I think non-Christians would enjoy it, but I have no idea. I am so far in to my, my faith. And that film is so far into its faith. I have no clue if anybody that isn't a Christian would enjoy that movie or get anything out of it, or they would look at and just say, wow, Tyler is really losing it. Is he trying to convert me with this film? I have no clue. So that's the thing is I might have my own thoughts. I might have my own, my own observations about what, you know, certain liberal film critics might be thinking, but honestly, it's just based on an outside observation. People could be looking at me and saying the exact same thing. I certainly know that when I look at conservatives commenting on film, uh, I am not happy with that either. So I would say just let people think what they're going to think. And then you can disagree with them and, you know, you can think what you want to think. And as long as you're both hearing each other out and, and really trying to hear why somebody arrived at a certain viewpoint, you don't have to agree with them. You might even suspect 
that they got there artificially or that they wanted to get there based on their political or religious views, you know, I can't help that. But as long as you're listening to the other person, I think that's fine. So uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps, John, you wanted uh, me to be a little harsher, um, but I don't think I can be. Um, cause I think that would be hypocritical of me on this show, uh, to do so anyway, but in the meantime, if you want to watch South park for the last couple of years, that probably would help quite a bit too. So anyway, um, all right. I think that is it. Uh, this was uh, pretty long. Uh, so if you, uh, pledged as part of the Kickstarter campaign, then, you know, uh, depending on what level you pledged, then you could send me a question that I will answer on the air. And in some other cases, uh, people uh, can recommend a movie for me to watch and discuss on the air as well. So anyway, uh, that is about it. Uh, Hopefully I didn't bother anybody. I know how many people absolutely love uh, The Simpsons. Um, That's a joke, obviously. People would be more inclined to be upset politically. Um, But yeah, you're welcome to to chime in in the comments section. And... um, Yeah, I think that's about it. Next week, we should be back with an actual episode, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, In the meantime, thank you all for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Mm